Palm Sunday, I'm not preaching a Palm Sunday sermon. I'll preach an Easter sermon next week, but we're still going to be in Romans. And we're still going to be right online in Romans because we kind of planned it that way. But this morning, what I need to cover before we get to Easter Sunday is what comes before. And what comes before tends to be somewhat of a dark place. I don't know if any of you went to any uh, services typically for like Good Friday or anything like that. You know, a former pastor of ours always wanted to do a Black Friday service where everything was shrouded in black. It's a Good Friday service, it's not Black Friday. Good Friday service, everything shrouded in black. And then as Jesus rose from the dead, you know, things would be ripped off and he was very dramatic. And I thought that was always kind of a cool image. But what we approach right now is the triumphal entry of Christ leading to his last week of ministry, earthly ministry, which tends to be somewhat of a dark place. The crucifixion will happen on Friday, but the events leading up to it, everything starts to go downhill. You ever had a really bad week? Yeah, just most of us have had that. And, you know, a really bad day where everything that, you know, you had planned didn't happen or went wrong. I've had days like that. Everything goes sideways. You thought you had it all planned out. You thought it was going to be a great day. You went from skipping down the yellow brick road of life to having the stuffing torn out of you like the scarecrow. Max Lucado, in a book called In the Eye of the Storm, writes one of my favorite stories. Maybe you've heard it before. It's about Chippy the parakeet. Chippy was a happy little bird content every day to sit on his perch, swinging and singing to his heart's content. One day, Chippy's owner took the initiative to clean out his cage. She took off the attachment from the end of the vacuum hose, stuck it in the cage to remove the sediment from the bottom. But just then, the phone rang, and she turned to pick it up and barely said hello when (laughs) Chippy got sucked in. As you can imagine, the bird owner gasped, dropped the phone, turned off the vacuum, and ripped open the bag. Inside, there lay Chippy, still alive, but stunned by the trauma. The bird was covered in the terrible grit and grime that fills a vacuum bag, so the owner did the only thing she could think to do. She grabbed him up, raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy under the running water. Then realizing poor little Chippy was soaked and shivering, she did what any good bird owner would do. She reached for the hairdryer, and she blasted the little guy with hot air. Poor Chippy never knew what hit him. A couple days after the experience, the reporter who wrote about the event talked to Chippy's owner, asked how the bird was doing. She said, well, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits there and, he sits there and stares. No wonder. One minute, the little guy is swinging and singing, and before he knew it, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. If that doesn't turn your song into a blank stare, nothing will. It sounds like a week, huh, sometimes. It sounds like a day sometimes in our lives. We often find ourselves, even as believers, getting sucked in, washed up, and blown over by life. On Sunday, we come and we're singing and we're praising God, fully alive, engaged in our relationship to God. Life is great, but come Monday, ow, sucked in, washed up, blown over. Sin's temptation sucks us in. Sin's aftermath leaves us feeling washed up like a former track star who can't even win a foot race with a five-year-old. 
and sin's guilt blows us over like a feather in a hurricane, leaving us to wonder why we can't stand for just even a day. Paul takes us to that place in the latter part of Romans chapter 7 today. And I said before, chapter 7 is one of the most difficult passages in the whole of the New Testament. Not because it's difficult to understand. It's really not. It's more because when we read it, we realize that it's a mirror into our own spiritual life. Every one of us could have written this chapter about ourselves. We've all asked the self the same questions. Why, if I want to do what is right, do I end up doing the opposite? I feel like chippy. Sin sucks me in, calls me a washed-up failure, and then leaves me blown over by the guilt. How do I get off this roller coaster? Who can save me from this wretched man or woman that I am? That's what Paul writes. The answers are not as difficult as the questions. Before we get to the answers, though, we need to understand the questions. Otherwise, the answers won't make a whole lot of sense. They may not even help us. And I want us to start in verse 8. Even though we covered a little bit of verse 8 last week, we, we kind of went through verse 13 last week. I want to back up a little bit because it helps to set the context again of what Paul is saying. But I'm going to ask you to do something I've probably never asked you to do before on a Sunday morning. I want you to put down your Bibles. Close them. Put your finger in there, whatever, I don't care. You're going to open them again. But for right now, I just want you to close your Bibles. I want you to simply listen. Listen to the passage as I read it. I'm going to read it out of the Message Bible because I think this picture Eugene portrays in his paraphrase of this passage really hits home. So just listen. Don't you remember how it was? I do perfectly well. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. What happened, though, was that sin found a way to pervert the command into a temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of the command. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was then used to seduce me. Without all the paraphernalia of the law, sin looked pretty dull and pretty lifeless. And I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got its hands on the law code and decked itself out in all that finery, I was fooled. I fell for it. I got sucked in. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, to throw me headlong. So sin was plenty alive, yet I was stone dead. But the law code itself, the law code itself is good. It's good in common sense. Each command is sane in its holy counsel for my life. I can already hear your next question. Does that mean I can't even trust what is good? The law being good? Is good just as dangerous then as evil? No, and again, I say no. Sin simply did what sin is so famous for doing. It used good as a cover to tempt me to do what would finally destroy me. By hiding within God's good commandment, sin did far more mischief than it could ever have accomplished on its own. I can anticipate the response that is coming from you. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. 
Isn't this also your experience? Yes. I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. I've perfected this part. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one direction and then I act in the other direction, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging even my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I go ahead and do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in good actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands. I love them. But it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel. And just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Is there no one who can do anything for me? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and did. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. The solution is life on God's terms. With the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that faithful dilemma gets resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air from that black cloud, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Amen? Amen. Amen. I love that paraphrase because it speaks to my heart about exactly where I am, and it challenges me to think differently. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but right now, let's just stop and pray. Heavenly Father, in your sovereignty, Father, you created us with a free will that can rebel against you because you knew that our love would mean nothing if we couldn't choose to love you. We needed to be free. We needed to be able to make that choice. And yet at the same time, Father, we also find within us this pull of this sin nature. And we question why that is, Father, because we know that we're, we're new creatures in Christ, and yet that old man, that old person, seems to exert so much influence so much of the time. Father, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear this morning that we can begin to overcome the influence of the enemy and walk more and more in the righteousness that Jesus died to give us, to walk at the level of privilege 
that his blood was meant to provide for us. Father God, this is too important a passage, too difficult a passage for us to ignore, to brush aside, to consider unimportant. This is life-changing stuff, Father God, and we need to hear it, see it, and own it. So, Father, I pray with all of my heart that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and most of all, hearts to receive this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The truth of this passage is that sin is alive and well in me, isn't it? I'd like to think differently. There are those who teach that once you become a believer and all your sin is forgiven, it's removed as far as the east is from the west, that you can no longer sin. I got news for you. I'm really good at it, and I've been a believer for a long time, so I'm pretty sure that that kind of theology is a little misplaced. Even James declares in the book of James that if you say that you are without sin, you are lying, and the truth is not in you. Sin is alive and well in me. Now, wait a minute. If I'm a new creature in Christ and I died to sin, which is what we read back in chapter 6 of Romans, chapter 6, verse 2 says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? This is a conundrum. I know that I died to sin, but I also know that I still sin. What does that mean? Am I just fooling myself? Am I not a real believer? Am I still this wretched sinner doomed to live, disappointed in myself and disappointing God? Last week, I talked about one view of Romans chapter 7, basically that Paul is sort of playing a rhetorical question game here. He's already declared that, you know, he's dead to sin and alive to Christ, that he's no longer a slave to sin, but he's a slave to righteousness. And, and I use the illustration of the black dog, the black dog of sin in the illustration was dead. So why on earth are we feeding a dead dog? Doesn't make much sense, does it? It's hard to get the food down. Why are we always going back and trying to resurrect the dead way of life that we were delivered from? It's a really good question, isn't it? But we do it, don't we? Yeah, we do. I also talked about another view that said the reason we still sin, because it's because we're not fully committed to and surrendered to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Even though it's impossible for us to live sinless in our own strength, nothing, including a sin-free life, is impossible for God. God can do it. In fact, God already did it in Christ. Jesus, as our example, was a man wholly submitted to the Father through the Holy Spirit. He didn't act on this planet out of his deity. Philippians chapter 2 makes that very clear. He set aside his deity, his rightful prerogative, and clothed himself in human flesh, humbling himself. He did this to prove to us that it was possible to live a sinless life as a human being. But you got to be fully committed, fully surrendered. The question remains then, though, Why does the possible always seem impossible to me? Why, even though I want to be 
what God called me to be, even though I want to do the right thing, do I so often fail? I ended last week talking about relationship. The foundation of victory over sin in my life is connected to my relationship with God. And I used my own marriage as an example, the point of which was to say that love was the enabling force behind success in my marriage walk, and love is the enabling force behind my relationship with Jesus if I'm going to walk sinless. I have to be so in love with Jesus, so singularly focused on him that sin no longer holds any appeal for me. I will walk in righteousness before God based on how much I adore him, how much I love him. The more I love him, the less I love the things of this world. The more I fill my mind with him, the less room I will have for things that distract me from him. So let me deal with those two previous questions. First, the question of feeding the dog. It's a dead dog. Why do we still do that? Why do I try to resurrect a dead dog that I really don't want to come to life anyway? The answer, for the same reason that Adam and Eve sinned in the first place. They believed a lie. The enemy talked them into a lie, and he talks me into lies too. Folks, every time I sin, every time you sin, we do so because we've bought into a lie. We tried to force food down the throat of a dead dog because we think something good will come of it. It won't, but we still believe that it will. We will try and we will always fail. How how many times has sin ever really worked out well for you? (laughs) Did you try anyway? Okay. I kind of rest my point. Everybody can say amen, right? Yeah. Okay, not everybody said that. (laughs) why do we believe the lie? Why do we believe the lie that Satan whispers into our ear that if you do this, good will come of it? It's a matter of perspective, I think. And basically, I have the wrong one. I have the wrong perspective. I'm looking through the wrong lens at my life. C.S. Lewis once said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We believe the lie. And we shoot for this thing that's so far below satisfaction because the enemy has made it look good to us, made it look necessary for our life. And we fall in line with his thinking and we go after what he desires for us. You know, the enemy does have a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. So does the enemy. And the enemy's plan is to take God's glory. It's always been his plan. He wants your attention. Why? Because you are God's glory. What you give to God in the way of love, praise, and adoration, Satan wants. 
He's kind of a lonely, desperate person when you stop and think about it. But what he gets us to do is he gets us to settle on this wrong perspective of what is good, what is fulfilling, what is satisfying, what is pleasing, what's rewarding. We accept what the world is offering over what God is offering. Why? Because we've really, really settled in our hearts and minds on the wrong picture of God. We've missed understanding the goodness of God for us. When we reach for something that's less than what God desires for us, folks, that's what we're doing. We're reaching for something that isn't God's best for us. You realize that's what sin means. Literally, sin is missing the mark. That's what it means in Greek. To sin is to miss the mark, the mark of perfect righteousness. It's to miss the bullseye of what you're shooting for. Anything outside of dead center isn't going to satisfy like dead center will. Does that make sense? And what we do when we miss the goodness of God, when, when we don't understand the goodness of God, we settle for being outside of center. We think maybe that's the best we can hope for or the best that life has to offer when God says, no, I have better. Lewis would say that we set our sights far too low. We need a change of view. We need a different perspective. And that perspective won't get the dead dog up and, and, and running because you don't really want it up and running. You know, the second question, why if submission to the Holy Spirit makes it possible to do what seems to be impossible? And yet when I submit to the Holy Spirit, or I think I'm submitted to the Holy Spirit, why do I still fail in this area? Paul says that he delights in the law of God, and yet he still does the very thing that the law says he shouldn't do. Why do I play the part of a rebel? Again, I would say perspective. I play the rebel not because I enjoy being against God. It's not fun to go against God. I don't enjoy that. I want the right thing, but I settle for the wrong thing. Why? Because I've allowed myself to settle for a counterfeit reality. The things of the world become more real to me than the reality of the things of God. I know that may sound a little strange, a little esoteric, but it's not meant to be esoteric. It's meant to, to prick your thinking. You know, this real world, this thing that we call reality, you know, that you can grab hold of, okay, isn't near as real as God. Because if God stopped being God even for a blink of an eye, this would all just disappear. We'd all go back to dust. God is far more real than the reality that we call real. Colossians 3 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. It's a heavenly perspective about your life that God is wanting you to adopt to get his sense of what reality really is. Folks, you do not live earth to heaven. You live heaven to earth. See, we spend most of our lives living earth to heaven, having the viewpoint of, here I am, God, do something for me. God, may I see you? May I... Wait a minute, wait a minute. 
God said, you're already seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. You're supposed to be seeing life the other direction, seated with God looking at the earth to have his perspective. And that's what we miss. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Get a different perspective, a heavenly perspective. See life from the eyes of God. Well, see, that's all good and well, Scott, but how does that work? How does that really help me? What does it even look like? I am so glad you asked. You know, Paul's been leading to this one glorious perspective on our struggle with sin. All through chapter 7, really actually since about chapter 5, he's been talking about sin, being slave to sin, being a slave to righteousness, the change that is supposed to be wrought inside of us as the new creature takes hold. He's been leading up to this one glorious statement. You cannot, folks, you cannot win this battle with sin by your good intentions. Paul lays that out very clearly. You can't do it by your good intentions. I might want to do the things that are good, but I still do the things that are not. My heart might be sold out to God. My body still goes this direction. Our best intentions, folks, are are often not even realized We may want to do the right thing, but we don't do them. We actually do the very thing that we don't want to do, the very thing that we would consider wrong. We fall prey to the enemy's lies, and we miss the unimaginable depth of the goodness of God for us. We settle for so little. We cannot win this battle with sin by simply claiming surrender to the Holy Spirit. How many of you have done that? I have. So many times. And so many times I find myself back at the same place going, God, why did I go there? Same thing that Paul's laying out here. And as much as I I appreciate the viewpoint of surrender of the Holy Spirit, and as much as I believe that it is absolutely intrinsically necessary, it still raises the question, why, if I'm trying so hard to submit myself to the Holy Spirit, do I still go the wrong direction? It's necessary, but unless your perspective on who you are and who God is for you is also changed, I guarantee you'll fail. You will crawl down off the altar of sacrifice, and you will go your own way because you cannot imagine that staying there is what victory looks like, especially when life is tough. Things aren't going quite the way you want. That altar of sacrifice, being a living sacrifice, which is what Romans 12, 1 and 2 calls us to be, that doesn't look very good when life hurts, does it? And we want to crawl down off that altar and we want to find another way out because, God, this is painful, even when it's not painful. And we're up on that altar and we see something that looks good. We have a tendency to crawl down and go after it, don't we? We need a change of perspective. And that's the point that Paul is making at the end of the chapter. This is where I really like Peterson's message Bible, his paraphrase. In verse 24, he says, I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? 
The NIV version says of verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Boy, doesn't that sound like me sometimes? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, God has planned a rescue mission. Again, Eugene says in verse 25, the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and did. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. What did God do? He gave a new perspective from which to live. It's a life lived on God's term with God's perspective in mind. Listen to what the next part says. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. Therefore, remember what therefore is there for? Therefore is attaching to what came before, right? Now, if all this stuff is true of me, as much as I try, I cannot do what I want to do, but thanks be to God that Jesus did it for me. Therefore, there is no, say that with me, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a, sinful, to be a sin offering so that he condemned sin in sinful man in order that righteous, the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Did you notice he didn't say fully met in Jesus? It's fully met in us because of Jesus. The righteous requirement of the law has been met in us because of what he did on the cross. We who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. I'm going to talk about this some more next week, but get this and hold on to this until we get to it next week. There is a new perspective out of which God has called us to live our lives, folks. The perspective of our standing before Christ. Our standing is one of complete and utter forgiveness and acceptance by God. It is not about our performance. Again, even though I want to do the things I would should do, I do the very things I don't want to do. It's not about our performance. That's what Paul's point here is. There is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It's not about our performance. So it's never going to be about what I do. It's always going to be about what Jesus did. Listen, get this. You are free from the law of sin and death. That means that you are free to fail. Does that give you license to fail? No. But you are free to fail. You are free to fall. You are free to get it wrong without condemnation, without judgment, without punishment. That's what Jesus did for you. There is, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you a question. I want you to think on this this week. 
What would you risk if you knew you couldn't fail? Well, geez, Scott, if I knew I couldn't fail, there wouldn't be any risk, right? Exactly. If you couldn't fail, there wouldn't be risk involved. Here's the new perspective I want you to own. The law, the requirement of righteousness or right living before God, which is what that means, cannot be missed, failed, or otherwise botched by you. Why? It's out of your hands. Jesus took it in his hands, and then he nailed those hands to a cross, didn't he? That's why a couple weeks ago, we nailed things to the cross, right? Because we wanted to get rid of them. That's what he did with his hands. He took it, this whole thing of sin, out of your hands, and then he nailed his hands to a cross for you so that you would not be held liable for your failures, for your shortcomings, for your wrongdoings. It's what it means to be forgiven. It's what it means to have no condemnation. God already took care of that for you. And that, folks, is the perspective of real freedom. Now, if you can approach life this week from that perspective, a heavenly perspective of who you are in Christ, don't you think it'll make a difference on how often you turn towards the enemy's plan? I think it does. It's when I lose that perspective and I crawl down off the altar of sacrifice and I chase after something I shouldn't. I go a direction no, I don't really want to go that I have problems. The perspective that all this is already done for me, Christ has already taken all of this and done it for me, frees me, folks. Doesn't free me to... To, to sin, it frees me to live righteous before God. The wretched man that the NIV talks about needs to be delivered from the body of death. That guy, folks, doesn't have to exist anymore for you. Can I live like that guy? Yeah, I, I can certainly choose to do that. I can choose that perspective if I want to live below my calling, if I want to live below my standing in Christ. But I've been born again. That means I've been born to a higher calling, a calling and position of true sonship before God. If I live with that mindset, then I won't need or want to go back to feeding the dead dog of my former sinful nature. If I live with that mindset, then nothing will be able to entice me to crawl down from the altar of sacrifice and go a different direction than the one that Jesus laid out for me. It's living with a heavenly perspective on my earthly walk, and that really is the challenge. But here's the deal. It's not just a challenge. It's an invitation as well. It's an invitation to walk in the freedom that Jesus Christ bought for you on the cross. We're going to talk more about that freedom next week as we celebrate Easter, the resurrection that proved our freedom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you went to amazing lengths, incredible lengths, to bring us to a place where we could even hope 
to stand before you in righteousness. And now we know, Father. We know because of an an empty tomb. We know that it's no longer a hope. It's a reality. It is what you planned and executed on our behalf. It's what you designed and carried out. It's what you always meant for us to be able to enjoy. Fellowship with you. Righteousness that brings us into your throne room based on your perfect love and sacrifice for us. Father, give us a heavenly perspective on our lives this week that we are hidden in Christ Jesus, that we are seated in heavenly places. We don't have to walk around on this earth accepting the lies of the enemy and chasing after them. We can live as children of a king with a different perspective, a perspective of freedom, freedom that leads, leads to righteousness. Thank you for what you've done for us, Jesus. We give you praise and glory in your name. Amen.